Welcome to OCS Field Guide, the podcast that helps you study smarter for the OCS exam. Welcome back. Today we are picking up where we left off in the Adhesive Capsulitis Clinical Practice Guideline. We're going to jump right in with examination. First, we have outcome measures. The three outcome measures with the strongest support for this condition are the DASH, the ASES, and the SPOTTY. You're probably already familiar with the DASH or the Disabilities of the Arm, Shoulder, and Hand questionnaire, or at least its quick form counterpart. But the DASH is a 30-question self-report questionnaire with scores from 0 to 100, where the lower scores indicate less disability and high scores indicate more disability. The average minimal detectable change reported in studies is 10.5, and the minimal clinically important difference is reported as 10.2. So for questions that involve whether or not a patient has improved, you're looking for at least a 10-point decrease in score as your cutoff for functional improvement. The Shoulder Pain and Disability Index, or the SPOTTY, is a 13-item self-report tool with scores again between 0, representing no disability or pain, and 100, representing the worst disability and pain. The MDC is 18, and the MCID is between 8 and 13. The fact that the DASH and SPOTTY both have disability in the name reminds you that they are measures of disability, which means higher scores have worse disability. In contrast, the last OMT to be familiar with, the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon's Shoulder Scale, or the ASES, is a measure of function, meaning that higher scores indicate greater function. It also ranges from 0 to 100, and the MDC is 9.4, and the MCID is 6.4. So if you're reading a case that uses the ASES, you'd be looking for more than 6 points of increase to know that improvement has occurred. If you're short on time, know the most popular outcome measurement tool, which is going to be the DASH or the SPOTTY in my opinion. There is a level recommendation for using one of these three validated functional outcome measures before and after interventions. Moving right along, for activity limitations, there is F level recommendation for using the following activity limitations to assess changes in the patient's function over time. Pain during sleep, pain and difficulty with grooming and dressing activities, and pain and difficulty with reaching activities to the shoulder level, behind back, and overhead. Sounds pretty obvious, but remember that this should be individualized to a patient's previous and desired level of function. For physical impairments, they give E or expert opinion recommendation for using the following active and passive range of motion measures, shoulder flexion and abduction, glenohumeral external rotation at 0, 45, and 90 degrees of abduction, provided they have the available abduction range of motion, and glenohumeral internal rotation in 90 degrees of abduction or 45 degrees if they do not have 90. Go figure. 
At this point in the exam flow, you have performed medical screening and decided if the patient is appropriate for PT, referral, or both, performed differential diagnosis to confirm that this is in fact adhesive capsulitis, and examined the patient. Now comes component three of the evaluation intervention paradigm, diagnosis of tissue irritability level, which will certainly be appropriate for adhesive capsulitis. Remember that it will be more appropriate to make treatment decisions based on irritability level than what stage the timeline would put them in. High irritability will be characterized by pain at or above 7 out of 10, consistent night pain or resting pain, high levels of reported disability on your outcome measurement tools, and pain occurring before end ranges of active and passive movements, and active range of motion significantly less than passive range of motion due to pain. That is, if they let you push them past where they took it themselves, you will get further before hitting an end feel, but will likely have an empty end feel. Moderate irritability will report pain between 4 and 6 out of 10, intermittent night or resting pain, moderate levels of reported disability on your outcome tools, pain occurring at in ranges of active and passive movements, and active range of motion similar to passive range of motion. Low irritability will have pain at 3 out of 10 or lower, no night or resting pain, minimal levels of reported disability on outcome tools, and pain only with overpressure into end ranges of passive movements, and active range of motion the same as passive range of motion. Now for the moment we've all been waiting for, interventions. I'll first go through the actual graded intervention recommendations, and then go through how each will apply to the levels of irritability. Remember that the OCS is testing your ability to think and apply the best intervention to the individual case, not just what has the strongest level of evidence. The first we'll discuss is an intervention that, at least in typical practice in the United States, is not provided by us as physical therapists, but that we can certainly help get for our patients, intraarticular corticosteroid injections. There is a level recommendation for intraarticular corticosteroid injections combined with shoulder mobility and stretching exercise in providing four to six weeks of pain relief and improved function. This may be especially important in the early stages as an injection could limit the amount of inflammation, neovascularization, synovitis, and whatever else comes along that ends up causing the fibrosis that leads to longer-term range of motion limitation and thus could significantly decrease the overall duration of the condition. That being said, one of the better RCTs on steroid injections used only individuals that had symptoms for more than one year, and it demonstrated significantly better outcomes in the injection plus supervised physical therapy group over injection or PT alone. This highlights the utility of steroid injections even well into the natural course of adhesive capsulitis. Also note that in pretty much all the studies reviewed, corticosteroid plus physical therapy or at least some form of home stretching routine was always best, so be ready to educate patients and providers that might recommend their patient get an injection by itself. 
Newer evidence only strengthens the case for injection plus PT. One 2017 RCT in the American Journal of Sports Medicine showed faster improvement in pain, function, and range of motion continued all the way through eight weeks compared to the non-injection group. There was also a massive trial done since this CPG was published called the UK FROST trial with 500 participants randomized to either structured PT with corticosteroid injection, manipulation under anesthesia plus corticosteroid injection, or arthroscopic capsular release with optional corticosteroid injection. All groups got 12 sessions of physical therapy over up to 12 weeks. The only outcome taken was at 12 months with the Oxford shoulder score. Not surprising, all of the groups had pretty good outcomes, but improvement was not significantly different enough for them to say that any group was superior, which to me as a PT tells me that if I have to go under anesthesia and have a manipulation or a surgery and then still have to do just as much PT only to be about the same at one year, you can guess what intervention I'm choosing. Sadly, they didn't look at any other measures that could have told us so much like range of motion. However, it's notable that the manipulation and capsular release groups carried greater risk of adverse events, while there were zero adverse events reported within the 200 subjects that were in the PT category. Now for patient education. There is B-level recommendation that clinicians utilize patient education that describes the natural course of the disease, promotes activity modification to encourage functional pain-free range of motion, and matches intensity of stretching to the patient's current level of irritability. This recommendation is based primarily on an important and interesting study that compared patients with adhesive capsulitis receiving what they called supervised neglect, where patients got the above education only, and a group that received aggressive therapy where they had supervised rehab with exercise and manual techniques stretching up to and beyond pain threshold in addition to an HEP of maximal stretching. At two-year follow-up, the supervised neglect group actually had 89% of the cohort above their cutoff of 80 out of 100 on the constant score, which is the most widely used shoulder function scale in Europe, though the writers of this CPG don't like it. While the aggressive therapy group had only 64% of the cohort achieving the 80 out of 100 cutoff score. The most important takeaways from this study are not that we should only do education and not do therapy, but rather that we should be sure we educate patients that pushing harder into and through pain is not better with their stretching at home or in the clinic. And we should not utilize and promote pushing into or through pain with our manual or other interventions. If we do, I think especially in higher irritability or earlier stages, this study would indicate we may be harming the patient and limiting their outcomes. Rather, the aggressiveness of any intervention should be based on the patient's current level of irritability. This leads us to the next intervention recommendation, stretching exercises. 
There is B-level recommendation for stretching exercises, which states that clinicians should instruct patients in stretching exercises that match the level of tissue irritability. Of note, the studies show that stretching exercises do appear to improve pain and range of motion, but not necessarily more than other interventions, and outcomes are somewhat inconsistent across studies. The authors cite the need for future studies that classify patients into different treatment groups most likely to respond well to stretching versus other interventions, and studies that match force application to the level of tissue irritability of the patients in order to have a clearer picture of how beneficial stretching exercises are. Of note, the studies with the best outcomes on pretty much any other treatments that I have and will mention have included some form of stretching, thus the B-level recommendation. Joint mobilization receives a C-level recommendation and states that clinicians may utilize joint mobilization procedures primarily directed to the glenohumeral joint to reduce pain and increase motion and function. Similar to the stretching exercise recommendation, there is definite benefit but little evidence to support its efficacy over other interventions, and the authors provide the same two needs in future studies to provide a clearer picture. The studies listed use techniques such as oscillatory or sustained inferior, posterior, and anterior glide mobilizations, though one study found posterior glide to be superior to anterior glide in improving external rotation range of motion, which is the opposite of what we would expect if we are talking about the concave-convex rule. Of note, a relatively small 2016 RCT by Selick and Mutlu showed superiority of mobilization plus stretching exercise over stretching exercise alone. Now for modalities. There is a C-level recommendation for the use of heating modalities such as shortwave diathermy, ultrasound, and hot packs, as well as electrical stimulation when combined with mobility and stretching exercise to reduce pain and improve shoulder range of motion. In a minute, we'll talk about the tissue irritability level recommendations for this, which in this CPG only calls for it for pain modulation with high and moderate irritability cases. However, I'll give a little more information. Many of the studies, including ultrasound or diathermy, used it immediately prior to stretching in order to increase capsular temperature prior to stretching, and some demonstrated greater improvement in range of motion when compared with superficial heating or sham treatment. One of the studies involving TENS used it during prolonged in-range stretching with pulleys, and showed that it was better than therapy, including superficial heat, with a combination of active and passive mobilization. All of this highlights a very active use of these modalities, whether it be to modulate pain in a high irritability case, to allow for a period of more comfortable activity, or in a moderate to low irritability case where it should be used more to prepare a tissue for stretching if used at all, or allow for a more comfortable long-duration stretch rather than just giving them these modalities standalone or at the end of the session just because they feel good if they don't need it to modulate pain. I will mention, though, that at least two small RCTs 
published since this CPG that compared sham to real ultrasound showed no benefit in combination with typical mobilization and stretching regimen. Very recently, there was a sham-controlled RCT on high-intensity laser, which did show greater improvement in pain, but not function or range of motion in the short term. So, there is mixed evidence, hence the C-level recommendation, but suffice it to say that you can use it, but only in combination with mobility and stretching exercise. While we're still talking about modalities, I'll throw in a little extra plug for extracorporeal shockwave therapy. Extracorporeal shockwave therapy is growing in popularity for many conditions. Since 2013, a small handful of studies have shown utility for pain relief and improvement in function in the short term in individuals with adhesive capsulitis. One notable study demonstrated superiority of radial shockwave to low-dose corticosteroid for pain relief and improvement in function for diabetic individuals with adhesive capsulitis, who often are not indicated for the more effective high doses of steroid injection. So we may see more on extracorporeal shockwave as time goes on. Finally, we have a C-level recommendation for translational manipulation. This is kind of an odd one. It's presented as a less risky alternative to long lever manipulation under anesthesia for individuals with unresponsive adhesive capsulitis and consists of an anesthesiologist performing an inner scalene block and then performing grade 3 inferior and posterior glide mobilizations and then going for a grade 5 manipulation into those planes if motion didn't improve with the aggressive mobilization alone. Note that this is only done in two studies reviewed by the CPG and one other study since. And the patients were on oral steroids and were supposed to do passive long-duration stretches every hour while the block was still in effect, and they did a lot of PT right after. Again, this is presented as a more practical and lower-risk alternative to manipulation under anesthesia that can be done outpatient, but I'm guessing it's a pretty low percentage of PTs that work in a setting that would allow for this. To wrap it all up, let's go through the fourth and final component of the evaluation and intervention paradigm, which applies these intervention strategies to tissue irritability level. First, high irritability cases. Again, think 7 or more out of 10 pain, consistent night and resting pain, high disability, pain before in range, and active range of motion significantly less than passive range of motion due to pain. The modalities available include heating and electrical stimulation modalities for pain modulation. Self-care and home management training should consist of education on positions of comfort and activity modification to limit tissue inflammation and pain. Manual therapy can include low-intensity joint mobilization procedures in the pain-free accessory ranges and glenohumeral positions. Mobility exercises should consist of pain-free passive range of motion exercises and pain-free active assisted range of motion exercises. Oddly, it doesn't mention the corticosteroid injection combined with stretching and mobility exercise recommendation, likely because we won't be performing it, 
But these high irritability cases are going to be very indicated for it, provided they would be a candidate medically. For moderate irritability cases, again, think 4 to 6 out of 10 pain, intermittent night and resting pain, moderate disability, pain at end range, and active range of motion similar to passive range of motion. They recommend modalities including heating and electrical stimulation for pain modulation on an as-needed basis, self-care and home management training consisting of progressing activities to focus on gaining motion and function without producing signs of tissue inflammation and pain. Manual therapy should have moderate-intensity joint mobilization procedures, progressing amplitude and duration into tissue resistance without producing post-treatment tissue inflammation and pain. Stretching exercises include gentle to moderate stretching, again, progressing intensity and duration without creating inflammation and pain. And finally, they recommend neuromuscular re-education procedures to integrate gains in mobility into normal scapulohumeral movement while performing reaching activities. You might notice that I didn't mention neuro-re-ed when going through the graded recommendations because there wasn't enough evidence to have a specific graded section on this, but it is included in a few of the studies compared with stretching or some other modalities. I think you can consider it an expert opinion recommendation to be used only alongside the other treatments listed. There have been a couple of studies since the CPG that have found positive effects with neuroread programs focused on improving upward rotation of the scapula, so this may get its own recommendation in the future. Overall, the thing to remember in moderate irritability cases is that we are progressing into some tissue limitation, but monitoring closely for setting off pain and inflammation. I could certainly see an OCS question asking how to modify an intervention that created increased pain and soreness for, say, 24 hours, like the one we did today. Finally, for low irritability cases, remember, 3 or less out of 10 pain, no resting or night pain, minimal disability, pain only with overpressure, and active range of motion the same as passive range of motion. For this level, they drop the modalities section, which does make sense when you consider it only being used for pain modulation. However, as I alluded to before, this does seem like somewhat of a contradiction as many of the studies used heating modalities as a prep for stretching and mobilization or to make long-duration stretching more comfortable, both of which could appear to be indicated in this stage, so take that as you will. Next, self-care and home management strategies should include progressing to high-demand functional activities. Manual therapy, including end-range joint mobilization, high-amplitude and long-duration procedures into tissue resistance, and stretching exercises, progressing duration into tissue resistance, still without producing post-treatment tissue inflammation. And finally, they include the same neuro read recommendation, including procedures to integrate mobility gains into normal scapulohumeral movements during function and or recreation. That wraps up this episode on adhesive capsulitis featuring the 2013 Shoulder Pain and Mobility Deficits Clinical Practice Guideline. Thanks for listening to OCS Field Guide. 
Don't forget to subscribe and then head to physiofieldguide.com for practice questions and more resources.